today on Ag News Daily. Site that uh, goes through a purification process to bring it up to about 98% CO2. It also compresses it. So that's how it goes from that phase change from a gas into a liquid. Um, ultimately, it'll maintain that liquid status as it moves through that network of pipeline infrastructure that we're developing across the project footprint. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Delaney Howell, in case you have forgotten what my voice sounds like, joined today by Tanner Winterhoff. Tanner, how are you doing today? Did you miss me? I'm great, and it would be rude if I said no. Oh, it would be rude, <laughs> but it would be something that you would say. Uh, I figured it'd be just rude enough if I answered that way. That's fair. That's fair. You really know how to get under my skin sometimes, don't you? I do. That's what great partnerships are all about. <laughs> well, I hope you do this to your wife and your children too. Absolutely. So how was your trip? It was great. I was in, for those of our listeners who don't know, I don't know if you guys talked about me last week on the podcast. I didn't listen to the podcast, to be honest with you. I was super busy, but I was in Germany last week with the Global Farmer Network and you played one of the interviews on the podcast with one of the Nigerian farmers, but it was really good to hear about issues impacting other farmers in other parts of the world, Tanner. And to be honest, most of the issues that we face here in the U.S. when it comes to input costs, labor, etc., are challenges that farmers in literally every other country are dealing with, and they are not unique to just the United States. Yeah, it does. It was it was a good interview to put perspective on what everything looks like worldwide. Yeah, and it was neat. You know, we've got the Farm Progress show coming up here in about two months now. It was neat. We went to kind of the German version of the Farm Progress show. So got to see some cool German technology uh, or European technologies, I should say. And it's, again, very similar to technology we see here in the U.S., although I will say Farm Progress show equipment compared to German equipment is much, much larger. <laughs> well, you're starting to see some of that when the equipment comes across to the United States. It's so used to having to travel down their narrow road, narrow road yeah. and in their smaller fields. So I can completely believe that. But Delaney, jumping into the first piece of news for the day, something that is not small is this North Carolina fire. So we uh, touched on it last year, but Swan Quarter, North Carolina, the out-of-control fire has erupted to now more than 800 acres in North Carolina. Crews began battling this fire and has estimated that it has covered 500, but this recent expansion this weekend is causing them to fear that it could grow larger. It's only 25% contained Delaney Crews from North Carolina the Forestry Hyde County Emergency Services, Hyde County Sheriff's Department are all working on this fire along with the assistance that's coming from nearby counties. So another one of these wildfires that is continuing to happen, but Delaney on the opposite coast of where we've been reporting from. Yeah, that's the interesting part, Tanner, is when you think about wildfires or issues like that, I don't normally think of the East Coast as having some of those issues. Absolutely. That's the reason I wanted to mainly share it here. It didn't have a whole lot of news impact to our listeners, but mm -hmm. uh, it seemed a little out of place. It did, but weather or having weather as an item of 
discussion is not out of place for this time of year because today officially marks the first day of summer and also the longest day of the year, Tanner. So happy summer solstice to you. But we're going to see the first day of summer met with some extremely hot temperatures this week as things are heating up in the Corn Belt. Record-breaking heat waves have been noted across most of the corn crop country and as the corn crop sweating. But uh, we should see, as Eric Snodgrass mentioned in one of his recent newsletters, that the ridge of persistent high pressure is to blame for much of this temperature tantrum. And his model suggests that we could see this continue, this heat continue into July, which actually is, you know, just next week. But hot and dry conditions are starting to heat up here. And for the week ending June 18th, so last week, second full week of June, was the hottest and ninth driest in 30 plus years for the Corn Belt as a whole, Tanner. So really starting to see things potentially take a turn for the worst if we don't see, you know, rainfalls accompanying some of these hot temperatures. You know, it's sometimes hard to get out of your backyard when you talk about weather, but it is interesting. That is some of the characteristics we've been experiencing here in central Iowa. We've certainly had the moisture side of it, um, but temperatures are much warmer than characteristically had during this part of the year. So another thing to keep our eyes on. So Delaney Caterpillar is elected to move their global headquarters from Illinois to Texas. I think we all have pretty clear understanding as to why corporations would want to move out of Illinois, but the construction and mining company, the equipment giant Caterpillar will ditch Deerfield, Illinois, relocate to Irving, Texas. So they believe it's in the best strategic interest for the company to make that move more sustainable to their company and to the world, says Caterpillar's chairman, Jim Umpleby. Umpleby. We'll say that a lot more confidently, like we know what we have going on. Caterpillar has more than 107,000 employees across the globe. Texas has been one of their areas of operation since the 1960s. But as they told the spokesperson, or as the spokesperson told the news, they're expecting a majority of its 230 employees at the Deerfield location to make the move with them to Irving, Texas. Mm. Do you think a lot of people will move? I don't know much about Irving, Texas, but that's a big difference, culture difference, temperature difference, et cetera. I would agree. Uh, I know if they're, if those Illinois residents have uh, property tax and state tax concerns as the Illinois government has continued to push forward policies that, in my opinion, don't make sense, might be a well-welcomed move, and they already have a job when they get there. That's true, I suppose. Yeah, maybe with COVID, they're thinking, oh, well, we can live and work anywhere. So I don't know, maybe that's an adventure for some folks. But that would be a big, big shift for me. I think I'd have to say no to that move, personally. (laughs) But Tanner, we've got some big news here. Two big headlines, I should say, coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court. The first of which was sent to us actually by Cassidy, so props to her for being on top of the ball today. But the U.S. Supreme Court has rejected Bayer's bid to try and nix the lawsuit that was filed quite a while ago, alleging that Roundup Ready causes cancer. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court today rejected that ask to dismiss the legal claims 
And now the lower court's decision will uphold the $25 million in damages awarded to Californian resident Edwin Hardiman, who alleged, of course, or I guess now has been uh, awarded $25 million, saying that his cancer was caused by the glyphosate-based weed killer. So that was certainly a blow for that organization today. However, a win for agriculture, Tanner, has been that the Biden administration on Monday came forward in a brief filed by the U.S. Solicitor General asking the U.S. Supreme Court to side with the American Farm Bureau Federation and the National Pork Producers Council in a case against California's Prop 12, which is certainly exciting to see support from the administration. They asked the Supreme Court to strike down California's attempt to ban the sale of pork from hogs that failed to meet the new production standards. And so this is just kind of the next step here before we see the Supreme Court case start their oral arguments October 11th, which is still a little ways away. Yeah, still a little bit away. Uh, I remember Cassidy and I reporting on that article around the Bayer loss. I believe it was Bayer. Uh, they had won a case in Kansas, I believe, that prompted them to press to see if they could overturn the results. So uh, interesting now for court law precedents going forward for those types of cases. Mm, because you'll have, you'll have two in favor of uh, the accusers, if you want to say that, and uh, one in favor of Bayer. So uh, quite interesting to see where that process is going to go. And another interesting track for us to follow, and that was such a corny transition, as you will see here in a minute, rail worker unions have recently said no to railroad contract proposals over the last three weeks of mediation after they have spent more than two years in what is called fruitless negotiations with the National Carriers Conference Committee, which represents Union Pacific, BNSF, CSX, Norfolk Southern, Kansas City Southern, and all railroads in that union. So contract talks have involved approximately 1,400 railroad workers who are members of these 13 separate rail unions. Workers are frustrated that they have not received raises since 2019 and are asking that their pay increase to at least offset inflation and show gains for the years without raises. So quite interesting here, Delaney, uh, after that really corny transition shows that this is a national order or a national concern. And there's actually built in national ways that the White House can get involved on a national level if these talks do not come through fruition. So after three weeks of in-person meetings, the National Mediation Board will offer arbitration to these rail unions. And if there's nothing reached in those three weeks, there will be a 30-day cool-off period. It literally says that, Delaney, cool-off mm. period, in which President Joe Biden may appoint an emergency board to govern the railway system during that cool-off period, which would then evolve into another three-week discussion followed by another 30-day cool-off. So quite interesting here, as we know that our rail system has uh, been short on labor and shown some bottlenecks, could potentially get worse in the near future. Sanders, speaking of bottlenecks, you know, Ukraine has been a big bottleneck or have been has been having big bottleneck issues when it comes to getting their crop out of the country, but also some potential storage issues have also come to light. And we've seen now the first, I suppose, uh, international aid has come to the rescue here. 
And Ukraine has received some temporary storage solutions from abroad as of Monday, their agricultural ministry said. Now, they didn't specify and don't fully know yet what types of storage solutions are coming, but they said that they've appealed to the governments of the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and the EU to help provide some temporary storage facilities. And by the agricultural minister's best guess, it sounds like either I guess movable or temporary silos or special plastic bags will hopefully be coming in the form of aid here soon to help with Ukraine's harvest and be able to, you know, be able to harvest and and keep in good condition the crop that is in the ground currently. So I thought that was kind of an interesting piece of news. Yeah, those grain bags have been used uh, here in Iowa after the derecho system and are by no means a permanent fix, but might be the solution that they'll have to use their infrastructure rebuilt. But uh, last piece that I have for today, Delaney, is just a um, small impact to our listeners, unless they sell directly to Kellogg's. Well, Kellogg has announced that they plan to split into three separate companies. They announced that this is a part of their greater strategic operational and financial focus. So each of their new firms will have their names released at a later date. But Kellogg will sit separate its North American cereal and plant-based food business, which represents an estimated of 20% of Kellogg's net sales in 2021 from its global snacking brands, cereal and noodle brands, along with frozen breakfast line. So as are some of our Listeners may sell directly to Kellogg's in their oats or wheat or small grain products that will go into their cereals and other products as well can expect there to be a company shakeup into three separate brands. Interesting. All right. So we don't know yet uh, how that will impact. Yeah, I know a lot of growers actually that sell directly to them. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what they come up with. One, more than likely uh, silly, fictitious names. Uh, as these companies evolve, but I got to thinking more on the financial side of mm-hmm. if you have stock in Kellogg, will that oh. now be split or will you get assigned? Um, quite interesting when they look at splitting it up three ways. Yes, that is a good question. Or if you as a shareholder will have the choice to decide. That's right. But that's all I have for news today, Delaney. Well, Tanner, I have just one other piece of news. Sorry, I apologize if you mentioned this week, this last week on the podcast, but during the month of May, China did a lot of business with Russia, more specifically Russian crude oil. They bought a whopping seven and a half billion dollars worth of crude oil in May, which is up 55% year over year and made Russia the top supplier of crude to China for the month of May, overtaking Saudi Arabia's position with the country. So as we see other countries continue to shy away from Russian energy, China has uh, made good and been able to snap up some of those available supplies at a record pace, Tanner. So certainly interesting to see, you know, the, the move of the market dynamics there. Yeah, I don't think we hit on that. I don't remember Cassidy and I uh, hitting that. So good on you to pick that article up from last week. Absolutely. But speaking of things that are not up today, the markets certainly are not up today. Tanner, as we're seeing news of a good looking crop going in the ground and coming out of the ground, I should say, in Ukraine, lots of other countries are starting to look at ways to get the crop out of the ground. And 
As Tommy Grizzafi texted me this morning of advanced trading, two years of bull markets and the bulls are getting tired. And that certainly is the case as you look at today's grain markets. Tanner, these corn down about 30 cents on the day, trading right at $7. New crop soybeans down about 21 cents on the day, trading around 15, 16. Wheat seeing extremely lower moves today, about down 40 cents in the Chicago contract, 56 cents. To yeah, 56 cents across the board in hard red winter wheat. And looking at livestock today, we're seeing the opposite story as uh, folks are probably rallying around the thought of having maybe some cheaper feed prices today, as well as continued demand for summer grilling season as we head into 4th of July weekend. So seeing a lot of positive movement there in the livestock markets tanner. But We're talking about, I don't have a good segue. I was going to say we're talking about markets to some extent today for our interview. Oh, it is a fun conversation, which I hope will open up discussion for our listeners that uh, we jumped into a conversation with Elizabeth Burns Thompson of Navigator CO2 around the idea of the carbon capturing pipeline that could help ethanol and other fertilizer plants reduce their greenhouse emissions. So uh, it was enlightening. I learned during the process. So why don't we let our listeners learn with us? And now time to jump into a pretty exciting segment to share with you listeners today. We have Elizabeth Burns Thompson, the Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for Navigator CO2 with us today during our conversation. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm glad to be here. So we have you as a uh, guest for the podcast today because of some headlines that have come about and I would say some buzzwordy topics and conversation around carbon sequestration and the carbon market. So thanks for joining us. Yes. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what role you play at Navigator CO2? Sure. So, you know, Navigator is is kind of a traditional midstream company. So uh, historically have done quite a bit in the midstream or what we think of as the pipeline space. Uh, I joined the team in July of last year and um, come at it through uh, the background and lens of uh, really value-added agriculture. So um, most of the organizations, or I should say processors that we're partnering with, uh, fall with the, within either that bucket of an ethanol plant or a fertilizer facility. So, um, you know, while the, the infrastructure itself is, is very, you know, equivocal to kind of pipelines, uh, the, the value-add is, is really into the agricultural sector. And so um, my role then uh, since since July has been a lot of the outreach associated with the project. So going out and you know having conversations with folks, uh, not only here across Iowa, where I call home, but really all throughout the, the five Midwest states that we have a proposed footprint into. So um, be it the the county or local community building or, you know, the, the local, a lot of VFW halls and such like that, where we've gone out and have meetings with folks uh, just to explain kind of what the technology is and what that value proposition is into some of the industries that are really important to us here across the Corn Belt. Um, and then also what the steps of the process look like and where there's, you know, robust opportunities for, for public engagement um, and also gathering feedback from, from landowners and community leaders so that, you know, we're putting forth a project and a structure uh, that's, that's workable and conducive to what, you know, the communities and, and landowners across that project footprint would be looking for as well. 
And Elizabeth, Navigator CO2, and its truest form is, is, like you've mentioned here, looking to provide carbon capture and carbon storage solutions. And recently, some big headlines came out, which is why we wanted to have you on today, that Navigator CO2 has signed a letter of intent to capture carbon with POET. Give our listeners a high-level overview of this project, and, and we'll dig, div, dive more into these uh, this headline a little bit more after. Sure. Uh, we were very excited uh, a little over two weeks ago now, or just shy of two weeks ago, we, we were able to, to make that announcement kind of official uh, with that partnership with Poet. Uh, that adds another 18 facilities onto our line. Um, obviously, with, with Poet being an industry leader in this space, the largest producer in the country, uh, that's a substantial step forward, not only for the project, um, our project specifically, but also when you look at um, how much of the ethanol industry has adopted or, or implemented some type of, of carbon capture plan moving forward. Uh, there are a handful of facilities that sit on top of the geology that's, that's necessary for this type of, of, of activity. So far out in Western Nebraska, uh, throughout central Illinois, um, our neighbors up in kind of the northern part of North Dakota, those plants are really uniquely situated that they are fortunate to sit on top of that. Um, the rest of the industry is really having to look at how do we still, you know, participate and capture those significant benefits associated with that um, in kind of an aggregated sense, which is what you see coming forward, not only with our project, but, but there's a number of others that have come forward at looking at how do you kind of partner together and build out that infrastructure. So, um, yes, we are very excited to, to add POET to, to the list of, of partners. Um, we also are very excited about all, all of our plants that are across our line. So uh, not only POET, but we've got Valerio. Uh, renewables that's got eight of their plants represented across the line. Uh, Big River, which is present kind of in eastern Iowa as well as part of Illinois. Um, also some some kind of one-off facilities or independent operators too. So we have uh, Siouxland Ethanol over in Jackson, Nebraska, um, and, and some fertilizer producers as well throughout the footprint too. So you've kind of given us a, a rough, if someone was trying to keep track of pinpoints on a map, where this line is going to be, but could you spell that out a little bit more clear here real quick? Where's it start and where's it end? So it starts, great question, Tanner. It starts a lot of different places. So it's kind of a, a network of sorts. Um, that's, I think, another thing that's uniquely different about this particular project versus um, traditional pipeline infrastructure of the past. Um, this is really kind of a, a spider web of both sorts of new infrastructure that will connect 30 plus facilities as it relates to our line uh, throughout uh parts of South Dakota, uh, Southern Minnesota, the Eastern side of Nebraska, uh, really all throughout Iowa. We do have more detailed maps up on our website, but then uh, our, our uh, point, I should say, that we're our destination of sorts where we're doing that storage or sequestration is in uh, central Illinois. So we're doing outreach across a handful of counties um, in that central Illinois region, all around the, the Decatur area and, and neighboring neighboring counties, I should say, around in there, uh, where we'll be building out those those well sites that are associated with that deep under, underground um, injection or sequestration. Elizabeth, this may be a little bit within someone else's purview, but I'm sure you have been well vetted to discuss this. I think a lot of the question marks from a farmer perspective is just how does this technology work and will it impact my ground that potentially it could go underneath? Can you share with us a little bit more about the structure of how this pipeline will work? 
Sure. Uh, and, and to take a step back in most of my county meetings, you know, I, I, I start with, uh, you know, if you think about there's, there's many different steps of the process. Um, and if we think back to middle school or elementary science, when we learned about the three different states of matter, gas, liquid, and solid, uh, we actually interact with all of those throughout this, this project process. So on site at your local ethanol plant or fertilizer plant, uh, we help those facilities install capture equipment. Um, which does kind of exactly what it's named to do. It's capturing that CO2 that's coming off of their fermenters on site. So if you think about how we how those ethanol plants are taking a starch and turning it into an alcohol, that's through the process of fermentation and fermentation necessarily has CO2 as a byproduct. And so we're capturing that. It's very, it's relatively pure on site, which also makes it the handling of it um, that much more conducive to this type of technology. But on site that uh, goes through a purification process to bring it up to about 98% CO2. It also compresses it. So that's how it goes from that phase change from a gas into a liquid. Um, Ultimately, it'll maintain that liquid status as it moves through that network of pipeline infrastructure that we're developing across the project footprint um, ultimately to that, that wellhead site, or I should say network of wellhead sites we'll have throughout central Illinois. Um, ultimately, it's injected about a mile to a mile and a half underground into a very uh, a saline aquifer of sorts, uh, a sandstone formation that has the porosity in there to be able to um, absorb that liquefied CO2. And then over time, uh, that CO2 begins to mineralize, uh, somewhat similar to if those of us that, that grew up on, on well water, uh, you know, had to clean out the, the bathroom faucets every now and then because they'll get lime buildup. The same could be said here, that CO2, the carbon begins to mineralize and actually attach to that sandstone um, and become solid or become part of that rock. Now, as it relates, I think, Delaney, to your question about what is that impact to, to farm agriculture and a specific, specifically land, um, you know, we are looking and we'll begin to do outreach as it relates to easements associated specifically to, to for the 50 foot right away that we need for, for placement of the pipe. The pipe itself will be uh, much smaller than, than what your I think folks are used to seeing with natural gas lines or crude lines, um, anywhere from six inches to 20 inches. So in many places, it'd be very similar to the size of, of field tile uh, that folks are, are, are putting in. We, we are putting in place a number of different steps to ensure that restoration uh, goes better than what folks have seen before uh, and that there's more points of involvement and feedback and, uh, you know, just specific oversight over that restoration so that that land is act- is getting returned to at or, or better than how it started. No, that's a great insight for our listeners, Elizabeth. We, we have been kind of following the carbon headlines. We've been uh, following, obviously, the political front around this. But what what do you see as the potential timeline for breaking ground, to use air quotes, and potential completion for this project? Sure. That, uh, great question. And, um, you know, with a, a robust project of this size and scale uh, necessitates a robust timeline. Uh, we started... I think even prior to my coming on board navigator, they had done, you know, two years of, of due diligence on um, optimizing kind of the, the routing uh, background. So layers upon layers of GIS data, um, looking at what that optimal kind of corridor that we wanted to initially start with um, as we began to winnow that down for, for where, what ultimately would be kind of the optimal route. Uh, 
we kicked off the outreach process associated with that in um, November, December, and January of, of this last fall. I spent most of those couple of months on the road, like I said, doing these county meetings across the broader project footprint. With the addition of POET here, we'll, we'll have to go out and do a handful of those. We anticipate those will likely take place sometime in, in August. Um, that's as, as it relates to Iowa's perspective, that, that's kind of a function of, of their approvals of sorts too. Um, but long answer to your question, um, we'll kick off uh, uh, easements. So working with landowners to, to go through the dollars and cents and work through that easement contract in the middle part of July in areas where we've had those meetings. Um, and then from there, you know, we have about a year and a half to, to work through that process as well, get, as well as, excuse me, uh, getting our permits filed in, in many of these states the latter part of this year, as well as, you know, the federal permits that are necessary uh, for it, as, as well as, you know, county level permits. We need road hall agreements and, and you know, drainage district crossings and uh, a number of different things at all different facets of, of the governmental kind of levels, be it local, state, or um, the federal, uh, such that you know, we look to probably kick off construction uh, the second quarter, the spring of 2024. Um, and then we've broken the project up into about 10 different construction spreads so that they'll be able to you know, kind of simultaneously be working on different segments at the same point in time, uh, such that you know, by the end of 2024, we can begin to start phasing those those facilities into operations, and that would go into 2025 as well. That, yeah, that's good insight. I didn't assume it would be a project that just starts and ends on a quick basis. But one last question that I have uh, before we wrap up is the incentive for the ethanol and fertilizer plants to join this project. I believe in a conversation that we've have had outside of this is it could potentially take ethanol, for example, to nearly a carbon neutral fuel. Which is, which is probably more, uh, I'm going to say headline driven to our listeners because of the push for people to go to electric vehicles to, uh, put electrical and autonomy into semi traffic. But is that, is that true? Is that a headline chasing fact that we might be able to, by sequestering this carbon from ethanol plants, make ethanol one of the most sustainable fuel sources available? Absolutely. So carbon is a cost of doing business um, or kind of, as I've said before, a quantifiable characteristic that determines the value of that commodity you're bringing to market. Um, no different than, you know, if you bring high moisture corn into, into the elevator, you know, there's there's market based uh, valuation on that or devaluation, I should say. Um, the same could be said here. The higher that carbon intensity of be it that gallon of ethanol or potentially down the road, that bushel of grain, um, there's a quantifiable valuation criteria associated with that. Um, and, and so, you know, when you look at uh, just to put some specific numbers to it, uh, you know, traditional corn ethanol, uh, which most of us are familiar with, uh, generally scores on a, on a LCA or a life cycle analysis, uh, a score of about 60 to 70 carbon intensity or CI points. Uh, a facility that adopts carbon capture and storage, like what we're putting forward with this, has the potential to reduce that score in half. Now, you partner those types of these, these, these process efficiencies, like what we're talking about with this technology, along with all of the fantastic things that farmers are, are have been doing or continue to do and expand as part of their farming operations and the quantification of those benefits, we get to net zero or net negative um, via kind of that partnership. And it's very exciting, you know, to showcase how 
you know, I've, I've watched ethanol and biofuels com- continue to evolve and, and be competitive as that marketplace continues to change. And I think this, this technology is showcases that that innovation and um, optimization is continuing to hold true. This has certainly been really insightful for, I think, Tanner and I both too, as well, Elizabeth, because we've been hearing a lot of news and it's good to just hear it straight from the source. But if any of our listeners have questions or want to follow up with some additional information, where's a good place to direct those folks to? Sure. So we've got a a robust project website that that we've uh, built out and we keep it updated. So uh, with that in mind, we'll have some updated uh, county level maps uh, that we'll be putting up. So we've got, uh, in addition to kind of a, a PowerPoint deck that walks you through all different aspects of the project from kind of the high level business pieces to uh, the construction steps to restoration to kind of the the build out of some of how we're looking at um, the easement valuation as well as crop losses and such like that. Um, We've got that encompassed into an overarching deck. Uh, on each of the states. So folks that want to be able to easily find something that's relevant in their locality, um, in addition to maps, because I know folks are are always very excited or interested to see kind of lines or proposals on a map. So we have all of that available on the website, uh, as well as contact information to to get a hold of us. And and we welcome those conversations, uh, welcome the outreach, and and please don't feel like you've got to wait till we we come to the community. We'd love to hear from folks. Fantastic. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us today. And uh, it'll be interesting. We look forward to watching how the project progresses. I look forward to being on here and some of the months to come to share even more exciting developments and and walk us through maybe more of the, the steps associated with outreach and what farmers can see in kind of the months to come. Well, Tanner, I certainly learn more as we have conversations like that. And some of the science and technology is a little over my head, but, you know, we went to that, uh, I guess, Ames breakfast a couple months ago. I learned a lot there. I learned a lot from Elizabeth. So I'm glad we continue to have these conversations and I hope our listeners are learning things as well. Yeah. And I will say that after the conversation, Elizabeth has opened her website's contact us form to anybody that has further questions. Uh, Navigator CO2 is looking to educate people alongside of providing these solutions. So If you found something interesting or got a question that applies to yourself, don't hesitate to ask. Absolutely. And Tanner, we've got to make an ask here. Cassidy reminded us, and we're bad co-hosts sometimes, but we need to make the ask for our listeners to rate and review us on whatever platform they listen to their podcasts so we can help other folks find out about Ag News Daily. So please take some time to rate and leave us a note if you feel strongly about the Ag News Daily podcast. Oh, I think that'd be kind of fun. If somebody leaves us a note, maybe we will give them a shout out on the show. Absolutely. We certainly will, Tanner. But with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.